from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hey, it's Ross Helderman from The Post calling. How are you? Hey there, it's Sungman from The Post. Uh, hey, it's Dave Farron from Post. Have you got a second? This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, February 2nd. Today, what a coup in Myanmar says about the state of democracy around the world. Plus, getting a vaccine while homeless. So, Anne Guerin, you are a White House reporter covering foreign policy. Explain to me what happened in Myanmar earlier this week. On Monday, Myanmar time, the military, which is the by far the most powerful institution in the country, staged a pretty classic military coup. After decades of oppressive military rule, Myanmar was a country on the edge of democracy. Tonight, it may have been pulled back into the darkness. They took into custody the civilian leaders. They took over government buildings. They took over methods of communication. I mean, basically every movie you've ever seen about a coup, they they did. In the early hours of Monday, the army's TV station said power had been handed over to Commander-in-Chief Minang Hyang, while Su Chi and other members of her party were arrested. And the thing that most people outside of the region would know is that they returned Aung San Suu Kyi to detention. She's the best-known democracy activist and political figure in Myanmar. You know, you must not underestimate our people. I may be the figurehead of the organization, but they are in this movement because they believe in it, not because of me. She spent more than 15 years under house arrest once before, and she is back in house arrest now, uh, having been deposed from her position as the de facto civilian leader of the country. It was it was quite hard for for people to actually see or know what was what was going on. And actually, our colleague Shabani Matani, the Southeast Asia bureau chief for The Post, she has been reporting on what it was like there as this coup was unfolding and how dramatic an image it was. Convoys were, were rushing down these 20-lane highways, fanning out to these different residences where, you know, Suchi and other ministers were to, to detain them and, and arrest them. The biggest um, shock, I think, for many people in Myanmar was that they woke up without connectivity. Um, The military had told the ISPs to essentially shut down the networks and shut down connections, particularly in Naypyidaw, the capital. So people that we knew there were incommunicado, unreachable for for many, many hours, which was quite worrying. And then in in the commercial center, Yangon, the, the biggest, largest city, people were rushing to get groceries. They were rushing to banks to withdraw money. Um, Myanmar's economy only liberalized several years ago, uh, starting in in 2010 when when the country began opening up. So things like ATMs and credit cards were were all pretty new. Uh, And people were rushing now to these ATMs to withdraw cash, you know, thinking that they would have to return to the days where they hoarded them under their pillows or or, or floorboards. And I think there was a lot of anxiety, a a lot of panic. I want to talk a little bit about what led up to this coup. And I think in talking about that, it's helpful to kind of start with Aung San Suu Kyi, the leader who is now in the custody of the military. Who is she and what was her rise to power? 
She is the daughter of someone considered a freedom fighter in uh, Myanmar history back when the country was known as Burma. She has been a leader in political rights and democracy movements in her own right for decades. Uh, She's now in her 70s. She's been doing this since she was in her 20s. She was detained, as I mentioned earlier, in her house in Yangon for 15 years, even When she was not formally under house arrest uh, by the military, she had extremely limited mobility. And in all that time, she was still managing to get democracy messages out and to remain the the figurehead leader of a political movement that then once the, the military began to relinquish power to a degree a little more than 10 years ago, became a formal political party and became the civilian leadership of the country. It's a lot more complicated than that, but that's the basic story arc of how she got where she is now. And I remember when Aung San Suu Kyi was released from house arrest, when she became the basically the leader of the country, it was seen as this sort of symbolic moment of the rise of democracy in Myanmar. And she became really an icon. Absolutely. I mean, she had been an icon for decades before, but part of the reason she was was because she was locked in her house and she was managing to still lead a movement while under threat of physical harm while being detained at all times. So yeah, when when the doors opened, literally and figuratively, it was a really magical moment. And Hillary Clinton went to her house and hugged her and it was pretty amazing. And of course, two of the greatest needs in this country are rule of law and uh, a cessation to civil war. All hostilities must cease within this country as soon as possible. Democracy is the goal that has been the goal from the very beginning. And yet we know that it has been a long, very difficult path that has been followed. The idea that this incredibly powerful military institution, which did not have to, strictly speaking, give up power, had been persuaded to share it at least and to share it with her was really amazing. And in the years since then, what has Suchi's leadership looked like? Well, there's been a push and pull with the military for 11 years. Sometimes it looks like she's winning. Sometimes it looks like she's not. And so against that backdrop where her authority is always got a big asterisk next to it because the military is really pulling a lot of the strings. And so against that backdrop, there was a separate issue involving Burmese nationalism. The Burmese are the dominant ethnic group. Again, the country, you know, was at one time known as Burma, but there are a number of other ethnic groups in the country, including one called the Rohingya, which many people will have heard of. It is a Muslim minority. It has been discriminated against by the Burmese since long before Aung San Suu Kyi was in charge of anything. But the real question of of what was going to become of the Rohingya in a democracy really fell in her lap, and she really managed it pretty badly. The mission has concluded that criminal investigation and prosecution is warranted, focusing on the top Tatmadaw generals in relation to the three categories of crimes under international law, genocide, crimes against humanity, and war crimes. 
she was trying to play to a domestic political audience as the leader of what functionally was a nationalist party, a Burmese nationalist party. And that meant that she, certainly by the standards of Western observers who had championed her for so long, she turned a blind eye to what, you know, really looked to the West like pogroms, military sweeping through these towns, burning towns. Please bear in mind this complex situation and the challenge to sovereignty and security in our country when you are assessing the intent of those who attempted to deal with the rebellion. Surely, under the circumstances, genocidal intent cannot be the only hypothesis. No one has completely clean hands here. There was a lot of violence. There were skirmishes. Not all of that was the military's fault, but obviously the military is the the one with the really big guns. And the fact that they turned them on civilians and uh, Su Chi didn't have a lot to say about it uh, really dinged up her reputation as a democracy icon for sure. And I remember that, you know, the the pushback against Su Chi as it became clear the violence that was happening against the Muslim minority there. I mean, people were calling for her to return her Nobel Peace Prize. And it seemed like she was really either siding with the military or at least turning a blind eye to the actions of the military. But if that was the case, then why now is the military essentially turning against her? This happened because ostensibly the spark was um, a disputed election. The military believes that the election in 2020 was fraudulent and that there was widespread voter fraud. But analysts and observers say that really would not have changed the result much, even if there were voter fraud, because the NLD's win was so decisive and so overwhelming. And, you know, the the, the military uh, really was quite groundless and, and baseless in their claims that there was fraud. So while, while that was the, the spark or, or the spur for them saying that, you know, they, they had to take power in this way and the, the current government was no longer able to fulfill their duties, there were a lot of simmering tensions underneath the surface. Many describe it as a clash of personality between Su Chi as well as the commander-in-chief of the military, Min Ong Lang, who's now in power in Myanmar, that both of them essentially hated each other and there were deep-rooted tensions there. And starting about two weeks ago, this drumbeat of fraud, fraud, it was rigged, it was stolen, and so forth, uh, really started coming to a head. And just like in the United States, when on January 6th, there was going to be a formal certification of the vote, a similar process was underway and coming to a head this week in Myanmar, which is when the military decided to make a move, prevent that from happening, detain Su Chi, depose the party, and, and reinstate state military rule. They did so by promising to hold another election in a year. We've seen this movie before. We've seen it in Thailand. We've seen it in other countries. You know, usually the election doesn't happen. But in any event, it was just a teeny tiny little fig leaf for a coup. Myanmar is not a stranger to coups. But once you liberalize and open a country, it's really hard to turn back. I, I was the former Myanmar bureau chief for the Wall Street Journal arriving in the country in 2012, 2013, at that point, you know, there were no cell phones. SIM cards were over $100 and people were not at all connected. Once they chose to liberalize and open the telecommunications sector, all of that changed very quickly. SIM cards are now a dollar and almost everyone is online in some way or some form. 
you know, you're, you're already seeing resistance build up through those platforms, through Facebook, through other forms of social media and people organizing civil disobedience. Doctors telling each other not to show up to work, you know, which is obviously devastating in the middle of a pandemic and not legitimizing the, the military by trying to help them, you know, with, with the vaccination drive and, and so on. Uh, we heard from Shibani about what she's been reporting on in terms of what it has been like there in the past couple of days, how people there are both surprised, but also maybe not so surprised about what has transpired. But I'm curious, on a more global level, like, why is this important to the rest of the world? In the American context and our current political situation, it's important for two reasons. One is that the United States has been invested in, in the success of democracy and greater political freedoms in Myanmar for a very long time and really helped bring the semi-democracy, the civilian military political freedoms of the last decade, really helped bring that into being. And that was no mean feat. There was a considerable diplomatic and economic effort that went into that. The U.S. dropped sanctions. The U.S. encouraged other countries who were very skeptical to welcome Myanmar into international organizations. There were lots of business groups that were trying to, you know, engage the country in economic diplomacy, peel it away from Chinese influence. There were lots of reasons that the United States was engaged and thus invested in the outcome. So that's one. The other is that, you know, we've just had our own troubles with a fragile democracy. We, we've mm -hmm. seen what can happen when a certain large number of people stop believing in in the institutions that make up democracies, you know, think that elections are uh, somehow fraudulent, that there are forces at work trying to undermine the, you know, undermine the country, undermine the, the security of, of democracy. And, you know, now that Biden is president, he has to try to patch that up a bit and he has to try to be the moral authority for what American democracy means in the world. Can he be? Can he say the right things in, in a case like this, you know, when his own country has just been so compromised? Yeah. You know, I was really struck by the statement that Biden put out. He said, in a democracy, force should never seek to overrule the will of the people or attempt to erase the outcome of a credible election, which is, you know, the, the kind of statement that you would expect to hear from the U.S. president about a coup abroad, but certainly hits differently now than it would have maybe a few years ago. And, oh, absolutely. <laughs> well, and I'm wondering, like, what th then does the U.S. like have any credibility in this situation to sort of be the the moral leader to this other country going through this coup if we are also not immune to attempts to try to overthrow credible elections or the government by violence and force? I mean, I, I think the answer is yes, because we've got, you know, 250 years under our belt of doing it, right? There's a time and grade that, that helps to smooth over the rough bits. But there's also an, an argument that the experience of the last six months, really, and, you know, very acutely since uh, since November 3rd, that the experience of having the, the election undermined before it happened and afterward by the person who ended up losing it, actually gives Biden a different kind of platform. I mean, the institutions held, 
there were some shaky moments, but, you know, the rule of law held. The mob did not take over the Capitol, did not hang Mike Pence, did not kill Nancy Pelosi. Donald Trump is not president. So for Biden, he can say, look, it can happen here. Bad things can happen here. But if the institutions you build and the faith in those institutions are strong enough, and if you work really hard at it, as he says he's trying to do, then it can work. So don't give up. I mean, that's a it's a different kind of argument than an American president has has made in the context of democracy promotion. It comes from from a place of, of being wounded, uh, which, you know, we're not used to being. We're the big dog. We're the ones who are like, oh, come on, you can do that. You can build a parliamentary democracy. It's not that, you know, yeah, it's hard, but you just have to like, you just have to believe in it. Buck up. Right. And it, it sounds different. It looks different now. Anne Guerin is a White House reporter for The Post. Shabani Matani is our Southeast Asia bureau chief. This podcast is sponsored by Monarch Money. Are you saving to reach your financial goals? Reaching those goals isn't just about getting more money, but by managing what you have. And the best way to manage your money? Monarch Money. Monarch Money is a new kind of finance app that's intuitive, powerful, ad-free, and takes the headaches out of budgeting. Try it free when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. Monarch puts all your accounts, investments, transactions, and finances at your fingertips. With a complete view of your finances, you'll gain insights on your spending and find new ways to save. Plus, Monarch lets you customize your dashboard, collaborate with your partner, set custom budgets and goals, and track your progress toward them. See why Mint users are turning to Monarch Money and loving it, and why the Wall Street Journal named Monarch Money the best budgeting app overall. Get a 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H money.com slash podcast for your free trial monarchmoney.com slash podcast. When the pandemic hit, advocates for people experiencing homelessness in Canada and around the world, they said, look, governments need to find the political will to help a population that is chronically neglected. Amanda Coletta is the Canada correspondent for The Post. In Canada, the federal government is responsible for procuring vaccines and it distributes the vaccines to each of the provinces and territories. So far, it's been doing that on a per capita basis. And then each of the provinces and territories sort of has control over who gets the vaccine first, so which groups to prioritize, and then how exactly to roll vaccines out. Amanda has been reporting on vaccines and how the pandemic impacts people experiencing homelessness. Now that the winter has approached, the conditions made their situations a lot more precarious. It's cold. Provinces like Quebec had a curfew from which the homeless were not exempt initially. That's now changed. And we're also seeing some large outbreaks in a lot of shelters in different cities that were much smaller in the spring and through the summer. 
And as advocates are seeing how difficult it's gotten, they've started calling for these groups to get priority vaccination. I am Sam Watts. I'm the CEO of Welcome Hall Mission in Montreal, and that's in the province of Quebec in the country of Canada. Well, here in Montreal, we pushed very hard to try and get uh, the government authorities and the public health system to agree to vaccinate people experiencing homelessness as part of the original priority list. And we were successful, thankfully. When you're trying to ensure that everybody who's doesn't have an address, can get a vaccine. You've really got to organize yourself well. So it's meant multiple locations and multiple events on multiple days. What is the argument for the idea that homeless people should receive the vaccine among the like earliest part of the, the populations that their circumstances mean that they need it more than many other people? Many people who are experiencing homelessness have chronic underlying conditions that predispose them to severe illness from COVID-19, and their access to health care is unreliable. When the pandemic hit, some of the measures that were implemented to stem the spread of the virus, such as shutting down businesses and other public spaces, such as libraries or community centers, cut them off from the places where they could wash their hands, for instance. A lot of the places that they used to go to were no longer open, or even stores or restaurants that they would stop in uh, at would be closed, or they would have scaled back their activities considerably to take out. Shelters are petri dishes, essentially, for the spread of the virus. People are sharing dining rooms, they're sharing washrooms, they're often sleeping on cots that are packed closely together. So when you think about the advice that public health officials and other health experts have been doling out during the pandemic to quarantine or to isolate yourself from other people if you're feeling unwell or you have the virus, to wash your hands, to keep your distance from others, that's not guidance that is necessarily easy to follow if you are someone who is experiencing homelessness. What challenges are presented by actually vaccinating people who don't have a permanent residence? I mean, how, how do you actually do that? It's really challenging. So health experts that I spoke to really stressed the need to sort of think how to roll out vaccines to people experiencing homelessness very carefully. It's a population that is mobile. It's pushed to the margins in the best of times. And there's often a lot of distrust among the population for the healthcare system. Some of the doctors and the advocates on the ground who've been involved in the pilot projects or, or some of the other early efforts to get vaccines to people experiencing homelessness really stress the need of building and earning trust. I spoke to a doctor in Toronto named Karen Wayman, who's been helping with some of the pilots. And she said that one of the things that her group did was um, it set up sort of a pre-site meeting with people at a shelter in Toronto that was on the list to be vaccinated. And so they went a, a day or two before they were going to begin vaccinations to sort of introduce themselves to the people who were living there to meet the staff and then to sort of answer any questions that people might have about the vaccine or anything else. And she sort of said, you know, it, 
This was her first pilot. It's sort of in the early days. And even though it was kind of time-consuming, one of the lessons that she learned was that it was really important. Some of the advocates that I spoke to said they were considering things such as giving gift cards to some of the people if they came back for a second dose, but it's certainly going to be a major challenge. And it seems like it's something that hasn't really been figured out yet. I also wonder if there is a problem of public will when it comes to vaccinating people who are homeless. You know, it it already feels like there is just such an intense demand for the supply that exists. And you hear all these stories of of people calling for days so that they can get their vaccine appointment. And that in many ways, we're already seeing how that plays out in terms of disparities of people who are upper income, people who are white, people who have, you know, historically been better treated by the medical system, that they tend to get access to these vaccines in higher numbers or with greater amount of ease. And so I wonder if there's a concern that, like, not enough people care about taking all these steps to make sure that homeless people are also getting access to vaccines. I definitely think that there will be. We've already seen a little bit of pushback in the what are admittedly very small programs so far. And we've also seen in some U.S. states where initially people experiencing homelessness were included on sort of early plans. And now as um, there has been a scarcity of doses, they've sort of been pushed into to later groups to receive the vaccine. And that's been pretty concerning for advocates as well. Amanda Coletta is the Post correspondent in Canada. That's it for today's episode. Thanks for listening. If you are a regular listener to the show, you've probably heard of Presidential, another podcast here at The Post that's hosted by Lillian Cunningham. Lillian is hosting a virtual trivia event on President's Day, February 15th. There will be fun special guests and prizes, and there will also be a demo of how to make President Warren G. Harding's favorite drink from 100 years ago. To register for this special post-podcast event on February 15th, find a link in today's show notes and at postreports.com. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.